All right, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. We are in the second week of a series in 1 John where we're going to be going through uh, the letter that John, the apostle, wrote to this church in Ephesus, and we're calling it With Feet on the Ground. And, and <clears throat> if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 1, the first three verses, Bible or your Bible on your phone. Um, last week, we, we got into the very first part. We got all the way to the end of f- the first verse, which was a massive accomplishment. This week, we're going crazy far. We're going all the way to verse 3, and so I'm psyched about that. But the thing that, that this is all about is John. John is this guy, as we talked about last week, who is uh, called the, the son of thunder. Him and his brother were the sons of thunder. And so you've got this com- combustible, this, this um, possibly angry or outrageous, but at the same time, he's, he's not just a He's not just that, he's not just passionate, but he's also a pastor and a poet. And he's this, this crazy dichotomy of a guy. Um, and and he's, he self-identifies himself as like best friends of Jesus. And he's the guy who, who's, who's super tight with Christ. And the thing that John is getting across is this. If you miss Jesus, if you don't get Jesus right, it's going to mess your life up. Not just your theology, it'll mess up your life. Because Jesus, getting Jesus right is absolutely imperative. Um, because there's people at the time who are like, we believe that Jesus is, he was a man, but I, I have a hard time believing, making that mental, logical leap that he's actually God too. And that's what you seem to be propagating, John, that he was both man and God. And, and, and John's like, yeah, that's absolutely right. 100% God and 100% man. And, and if you don't get that right, if you miss out the fact that he's God, It's not only going to mess up your theology, it's going to mess up your whole life. It's going to mess up the way that you deal with other humans and everything else. The Gnostics, uh, people who are practicing docetism, this this idea that, yeah, he he looked like he was really man, but he was really all God. All God, and he just appeared to be like in man-like, like a phantom or something. But there's no way that God would literally, literally and physically actually suffer. Or God would literally and figuratively take on human flesh or God would literally and figuratively, like, like, or not literally and figuratively, that God would actually literally, not figuratively, die on the cross. That's, not, that's, that's impossible. God would never do that. And, and John's message to them, to the Gnostics, was like, no, you guys don't understand. If you miss out on Jesus, if you miss on the fact that he is all God and all man, you will not only wreck your theology, you're going to wreck the rest of your life. And so throughout the whole book, he's talking about how if you get the God-man Jesus right, it will impact the fusion of your obedience and your choices and it'll affect actually your life and your life will actually be hallmarked by love. When people see you, even people who can't stand Christ, even people who can't stand Christians, when they see you, they'll have a picture of God with his feet on the ground. Very much like what Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. So last week we jumped into it. We got into the beginning, which is the foundation of our love, which is the word the word is this, this like fancy Greek thing that John threw around um, talking about Jesus as being logical and, and the rational reason behind our faith. That our faith just isn't like believing in some like happy thought or, or happy story, but that, that Jesus was rational and real and, and, and concrete, not abstract. And on top of that, the, the foundation of our love is what we're going to be getting into this week is being an event. That, that our, our faith and, our, and, and actually the outpouring of our faith and love is not built and based around um, even, even the, the fact that we can stand on what God's word says. It's actually built and based around something that happened that, that was before even the New Testament was written. The first followers of Jesus were blown away, not because they could quote the book of Galatians, because the book of Galatians wasn't yet written. The reason that they were blown away is because of an event, an event that took place 
the event of the resurrection. And so if you've got your Bibles, um, we're going to be lo- reading into this, this beginning of this letter. Again, the first three verses of what John says. And so in 1 John chapter 1, first three verses, if you could stand as we're reading God's word. And again, this is John, the poet, the pastor, the passionate guy who's fighting for the church and fighting that they get Jesus right to a bunch of people who say, yeah, he kind of was more like a ghost. He wasn't really a man. And John's like, oh yeah, this is what I have to say. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes. Listen to these sensory uh, descriptions that he's using. Which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The amazing thing that John is communicating is he keeps on throwing in life into like every sentence in that beginning because he's like, everyone who knows Jesus knows that a key part of the story of Jesus is his death. The cross happened. People know it's a historical fact. But John keeps on throwing in life because the, the death of Jesus was not the end because death only led to the resurrection. The event that, that our Christianity, our faith revolves around is the event of his resurrection. An event happened. And John wants everyone to know that that is what we're hanging, in, hanging on our faith on. The fact that an event happened, which of course brings us to Anacapa Island. If you go to California, Southern California, and you get in a boat and you go from Oxnard or Ventura out, you're going to run into the Channel Islands. And, the, and, the, and I, do you sail in a boat that doesn't have a sail? Are you sailing? You're not driving? What you, I don't even know what it is. You're going really fast across water. And you get over and you, you bump into the island if you keep going west. And you, get, you run into the Channel Islands. And the, the island that we went to was Anacap Island because it was the only one that had um, seats on it to go to any one of the Channel Islands. And you get to this island and it's like an aircraft carrier, okay? It's like, just like this rocky thing. It doesn't even have a, a shore to land on. You basically come alongside one of the cliffs and they let you out of the boat and you climb up the series of stairs to get up to the top. And once you get up there, it's gorgeous. I mean, yeah, it's an aircraft carrier and yeah, it's rocky, but it's, it's just beautiful. There aren't any trees though on the, on the whole island. The vegetation is really, really sparse. It's more like a desert out in, the middle of the, out in the middle of the ocean, the Pacific. And again, it's beautiful with the exception of one notable thing on the island, and that's seagulls. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of thousands and thousands of murderous, bloodthirsty seagulls. Like you think about seagulls, and they're not, they're not Anacapa Island seagulls. Seagulls are like, oh yeah, they're like the rat of the sky, right? They just like float around, they want your sandwich. That's about all you're gonna, and if you run up, you know, they'll run away, they'll fly, not run, they'll fly away, and that's about it for seagulls. Uh-uh, you wanna know where those seagulls are born? A majority of Southern California seagulls are born on Anacapa Island, where the seagulls are murderous. And where, where, as soon as you get off the boat, they warn you, listen, they are everywhere. If you don't believe that they're everywhere, look at any section of concrete on the island and you recognize the fact seagulls, thousands upon thousands of murderous seagulls are all over the place looking for people upon whom they may poop. 
But not only that, they are attacking. They tell you, and I'm not kidding you, I'm not exaggerating. When you get off the boat, they say, don't look at the seagulls in the eyes. Like what someone would tell you about like a, like a, like a gangbanger, don't, just don't look at them in the eyes. They're talking about birds. Don't look at the birds in the eyes because they will freak out and they will attack you. Alfred Hitchcock had no idea how terrible his vision was. I don't know if he ever went to Anacapa Island. Had he, he would have made the birds scarier. Because when you're walking around, and sure enough, it happens. You're walking along and you look at a bird funny, and, and all of a sudden it sort of gets up and it's like, it's flapping its wings and then it gets up high above you so you're not seeing it and it comes behind you and pecks your head. Yeah, I know. And you're doing nothing. You're just walking. One time, um, I, I'm, we're avoiding them as much as we can. We're just walking. Like, this is a great vacation. This is a great vacation. <laughs> and I get talking with another tourist. My family keeps on walking because I get embarrassing. So they just left me. And uh, as I finished talking with a tourist, I realized, oh, my family's down the trail. They're down the path. I got to go catch up with them. If you want to catch up with your family, what would you do? Yeah, that's what I thought. What happens when you run at birds? What happens? Fly away. Except for Anacapa Island. Anacapa Island, these birds, all of a sudden, they look at you and go, oh, yeah? You want to run, homeboy? Come on, bring it on. And all of a sudden, these birds start getting up and literally five, six of these birds are dive-bombing me. And you're supposed to put your hand up like this. I don't know if it's like, I'm volunteering, just kill me, I'm, just kill me. And, and they're just like swooping down. And I, I really thought, I'm, I don't think I'm going to die here, but I will not return to Illinois the same way. I will, yeah. Now listen, if, if you're going to attack me, that's one thing. But if you attack my children, my boys, especially my little boy Cohen, that is hilarious. <laughs> this is the best. Watch out, Cole! Keep going, Cole! Keep going, Hey! Don't make I can watch that all day long. Now, why? There's a reason. Why are the birds of Anacapa Island so psychotic? Why? Why is it that they warn you of these birds as soon as you get out of the boat and, that, and let you know that these birds are not like the other birds that you've seen on the shore? These birds are psychotic. Why would they say that? What, 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 is, the, what is the motivation behind their psychosis? Their home? It's their home? Okay, that's one theory. It's not true, but it's, that's one theory. Anyone else? Someone said it. It's not, not that. They're protecting their babies. Underneath every single one of these seagulls is a chick that has just been hatched in the previous weeks. And life is so treacherous on this island that they will do anything to protect their young. Their young have got predators all around them, including other seagulls. And so what they're doing is they are going banana psychotic to protect, and if you look at them wrong, they're like, dude, don't even mess. I will peck your head off. Why? An event happened. An event happened because it happened. Because that event happened, it led to a total change in the goal's behavior. John is making the message very clear. An event has happened. 
Okay, look, before you, you want to see something, Luke, the historian Luke, censored zilch about how messed up and cowardly we were as disciples of Jesus. He showed every flaw we had without even being embarrassed about it. But if you read Luke's sequel in the book of Acts, all of a sudden you see a different set of people. Why? Because an event happened. And because an event happened, because it happened, it led to a total change in Jesus' followers' behavior. And John is like, that was me. I'm not telling you this because I'm trying to start a religion. I'm telling you a reality that altered my life. We were freaked out, cowardly, ignorant people before, and we started a movement based, built and based around an event that took place that we know to be true. If it wasn't true, we would not allow ourselves to be killed. We would not allow our families to be tortured. We would not allow our businesses to, businesses to be run out of town. The event happened, and that's critical to everything else that's taking place in our life. And so because of that, we recognize that if you start looking at the book of Acts, you can see how important this event is. How many disciples were there? Twelve, right, until there weren't, right? Judas kills himself. And so now we take away one, and how many do we have? Eleven. Some people are like, what? Mm, this is a trick. <laughs> Hold on a sec, where's my phone? <laughs> Eleven. And so the disciples are like, the, as, as Hebrew people, 12 is kind of a big deal as a number for us, so we should replace this guy. But we need to replace Judas with someone. And here is the criteria. The job description has to include this. And it includes it in, in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, it says, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. So we, we, we want, you know, as opposed to the, the, the children's storybook Bibles that we have or the flannel graphs that we remember as kids in Sunday school, it wasn't Jesus and 12 guys in his entourage walking around. It was lots of people. And, and according to the book of Acts, it's like we have to find someone who's been all the way from the beginning when Jesus' ministry started when he was baptized. It's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one, of, and this is the final, most critical part of the job description, for one of these must become a what? Witness with us of his what? The event. That's the event. Why? Because we're not just propagating Jesus' message in memorial. Jesus said, love your enemies. That's, that's, that's timeless. You know what? I need to tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Because my, my, my teacher, my rabbi, my Messiah, who died on the cross for, my, for, my, for, for me, he said that. Now, he's still dead. But it's worthy of, of, this is a good teaching that we should continue to live out. No. The disciples said, we've got to find someone who saw, not only was with us the whole time, but saw Jesus in the flesh. Because that event is critical. All of a sudden, um, they, go, they gather together for Pentecost. This is it's 50 days after, seven weeks after um, the Passover and seven weeks after the cross takes place. And so the disciples are getting together going, look, Jesus said that there's gonna come someone just like him to guide us. And so we have to wait, we have to pray. All of a sudden, Acts 2 talks about the Holy Spirit entering into anyone who put their trust in Jesus's event the death and resurrection for people. And all of a sudden, it says that they were able to speak languages. They didn't grow up speaking. And, and the thing is, is that they weren't just, this was a time when people are coming into the city to celebrate Pentecost from Africa, from Asia, and from where, what is current day Europe. 
They're all descending in upon Jerusalem. So people who speak, I mean, multilingual area in Jerusalem at this time. And all of a sudden, these ignorant, unschooled fishermen come out and they're speaking the language and getting the dialects right. Now, if I stood before you and I said, I am a Spanish speaker, and I said something in Spanish that made you believe me, like, hay un cigarro en la biblioteca, que lastima. <laughs> you would say, hmm, that guy was born in a country that speaks the language. You could, no, you wouldn't say that, right? Because you, why? Because you could tell, it doesn't work. Coming out of my mouth, I don't, I, I might have words that are Spanish words, but the dialect is off. That's what freaked people out after this thing happened. These guys come out of this, this, they come out of this room after receiving the Holy Spirit and they're speaking not only languages they never learned, but they're getting the accents right. And it freaked everyone out. They're like, these guys, are these guys drunk? And Peter's like, we're not even, we're not drunk. Don't you see what's happened? The Jesus that all of us, we're celebrating Pentecost, but the Jesus who created everything in creation, he is the one who we put on a cross. You put on a cross. He died. And then he says this, he says, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all what? Witnesses of it. The event happened. Why am I telling you this? Because the event happened. They go from there, and they see this guy that, that's this lame beggar, and they heal the guy. The crowd freaks. Why are they freaking? Well, you just healed the guy. That's amazing. You think that's amazing? Were you guys around seven weeks ago? You guys know what happened. You guys put Jesus on the cross. And then he says this to them. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate. Though he had decided to let him go, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. So he just totally gives him a massive guilt trip. But this is the cool thing about the gospel. The gospel is never a guilt trip without hope. It's never shame. And all of a sudden he says, you did that. You did that. You guys were around. You guys were the one calling for Jesus' crucifixion. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And wait for it. We are all what? Witnesses of this. The event happened. All of a sudden, the Sanhedrin hears about it, the, the religious elite, and they're freaking out. They're like, I thought we killed Jesus seven weeks ago, and we're still dealing with the Jesus problem. And these guys are now healing people that other people are witnesses of the healing. We can't, we, I thought that we, we were all there with the, that sketchy like jury that we had, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Why is this still a problem? So they bring in the guys and they say, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, John, the guy who's writing the letter that we're studying, Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? I, and I love that. It's almost like, look, we're so dumb. We're just fishermen people. You guys are religious. You tell me, should, is it more religious to obey you guys or God? You be the judges. As for us, we can't help speaking about what we have what? Seen and heard. These are event-based, fact-based things. This isn't like, I'm believing this because my grandma told me about it. I'm believing this because I could quote you a Bible verse. They're like, this is an event that we experienced. We encountered this. And so they're like, look, we're going to let you guys go, but just seriously, just shut up about Jesus. And so like, okay. They go on out and they start talking to people about Jesus. And the Sanhedrin's like, oh, what are these guys? Bring them back in, bring them back in. And so they bring them back in. And all of a sudden, Peter and John and the other guys are there. And they're like, look, guys, 
you're going to make us guilty of your blood. We don't want to kill you. I don't want to kill anybody. I will. I don't want to, though. And so then, this is what Peter says. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. He's not saying here the theological reality of Jesus died for the sin of mankind. I mean, it's true, but he's not saying that. He's like, you did it. It was your guy's unjust court system. It was your manipulation that caused Jesus to be killed. You did it. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are what? Witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And the thing that's so cool is this, is that all of a sudden the guys are like, that's it, we're gonna kill him. Who's ready to kill him? And everyone's like, me, me, me. And then all of a sudden this old guy comes out of the shadows named Gamaliel. Gamaliel is this like teacher of the law. And he's like, guys, don't kill him. Christianity will never see the light of day into the second century. Every movement that starts with some rogue rabbi gets all hot and cool. And then all of a sudden someone finds out on Facebook that there's something cooler and they move on to that one. Beat them, but don't kill them. Yeah. And all of a sudden they're like, like okay. And so that, that's exactly what they did. And so they take, and, and the thing is, is that they do to Peter and John and, and, the, and the, the disciples that were there, basically what they did is like, we're not going to kill you, but we're going to murder your ability to have future employment. We're going to whip you so that there'd be scars on you. If you want to do a background check, uh, um, Andy Stanley said this is so poignant. If you wanted to do a background check in the first century, you didn't look at a person's references. You actually just went to their back. Their back was their background check. Because if, if someone took off their shirt, you could see, oh, I see, you're either a criminal or a slave. Either way, I can't trust you. Look at your back. Look at the scars. And so they are whipping into their back the inability to provide for their families. That'll teach them. And the disciples left that place and they were so bummed out. They like let all their friends know how sad and depressed they were. They're like, this is it, man. I'm never gonna, if, if Jesus lets this happen to me, forget it. I'm over this. No, that's not what happened. All of a sudden you see this happen right in the next verse after they get beat up. This is what happens in Acts chapter five. I love it. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. What? Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day. This is how they, these guys just are not good at learning lessons. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is, not was, is the Messiah. Their faith was so strong because it was rooted in an event an event that took place, the resurrection. Now, the thing is, is that thinking people today, we have to look and be honest about the fact that, yeah, that was a long time ago, though, like literally 2,000 years ago. And any thinking person, certainly any thinking atheist or agnostic that you know, and maybe that's you, maybe you're here today and you're like, look, I, I like the idea of Jesus. I like the idea of his teachings. They're good. I like morality. I'm not against morality. But for real, I mean... The resurrection, what probably happened, there was a literal Jesus and he really died by the hands of the Romans 
And over time, the myth was developed. Like over the course of, the, of history, the myth of the resurrection was birthed. And maybe it wasn't like, you know, nefarious, like, oh, we're going to propagate a lie. But maybe it was like, you know, it's like telephone. Over time, as the story is getting told, it alters and evolves and changes. So that by the time you get into like the time of Constantine or maybe the 400s or 500s, you've got this thing of like, yeah, and not only did he die, but three days later, he rose from the grave. And that's probably what happened. Now, if I was not a believer, if I'm a skeptic, that makes perfect sense to me. Because I know how that happens. If you have enough time, people believe stuff about over here that isn't actually true. And the reason that they can actually believe these goofy lies is that no, there's no eyewitnesses still alive to contradict them, right? This makes sense. Unless you go back to the first century. If you go back to the first century, all of a sudden you see something happen. Luke, the guy who's not a fanboy of Jesus, he's not hanging with Jesus, he's not like, he's not with the disciples, he's actually someone who comes in as a historian to account for this faith that he has now, but he wants to give a chronological historical account. So he writes the gospel of Luke, and then he writes the gospel of Acts. And in these gospels, he records from eyewitness accounts the fact that seven weeks, not seven years, not 70 years, seven weeks after the cross, the disciples are already publicly communicating the fact that he rose from the grave and we have, it in, we have a record of it. They were, they were talking about it before that, but we have a record of it actually happening in court cases prior to that, through, through the book of Acts. Now again, Gamaliel ah, comes back out from the shadows. He was, his whole thing was to try to mitigate and minimize the effect of Christianity, right? If we don't kill them, then we, we can like totally squelch Christianity. The problem is that we know that didn't work. The problem is because his prized student, Saul, this guy named Saul, a couple years later is still dealing with the problem of Christianity. And he's been commissioned to eradicate Christianity by eradicating Christians. And the thing that's crazy about this Saul is that within a couple of years, he flips the script. Skeptic Saul flips. And that's notable because people today who are not Christians know of Saul, who ultimately changes his name to Paul. They know this guy to be a historical figure. He's not like this fantasy person made up. They know that not only is he a historical figure, he's not someone who's on the bandwagon of Jesus. He was against the bandwagon of Jesus. So his skepticism to flipping is significant. And on top of those two things, he's also not just like an idiot who's willing to believe whatever someone tells them because they look at his writings in the book of Romans, which they believe to be written by him, and they say, this guy is an academic. He's a thinker. This is a thinking skeptic who thoughtfully was against Jesus. He was an atheist to Jesus. And all of a sudden, something takes place that flips the script for him. And, and, he, and he leaves. He's not coming back to Jerusalem because everyone knows him to be a Christian hunter in, in Jerusalem. And so he's learning all about his faith out here, but he needs to do something. Because he's a thinker, because he's an academic, he comes back to Jerusalem to investigate the event, the event of the resurrection by talking to the eyewitnesses. I want to know, this thing that I'm believing, that I believe about Jesus, is this accurate to the eyewitnesses? And he finds out that it's true. That's important, but more importantly than the fact that he went back there within a couple of years of the cross, within a couple of the years, hypothetically, of the resurrection, is that he recorded it in a letter that historians today believe to be connected to the historical Paul. He records his findings about that event in a time when eyewitnesses are still alive to falsify it, to be able to say that's not true. 
or, or to be able to say, no, it actually is true because I was there. He encourages people in this letter to actually investigate it and do what he did. And the amazing thing is, is that that period of time where the resurrection is communicated that that literally happened, it did not, is not happening over a course of hundreds of years. It happens in 15 to 20. And that's huge. You don't get a myth developed within 15 to 20 years that people are, are going to believe to be true even though they were eyewitnesses against the fact that it didn't happen. All of a sudden, the thing that, that a lot of people are blown away with is that this concept of the myth of the resurrection being birthed halfway through doesn't hold up to history. The thing that is turning thinking atheists and thinking agnostics to Christ more than anything else is the fact that they do believe now that an event happened. There's no other explanation if we were doing this in a court of law, this is what would be the slam dunk reality. One of my favorite books on the subject is written by an atheist who became Christian and uh, a follower of Jesus called The Case for Christ. And we wanted to make these available. If you're curious, if you're someone who really likes to get into learning more about like, well, yeah, but how do I know that? This is a great book from a guy who came from not believing and wanting to disprove Christianity to being blown away by the actual facts on the, on the ground. And so we thought, well, we want to make this resource available to you. And so we bought uh, like 12 to 15 um, copies. And that was the first thing that we did wrong because we bought 12 to 15 copies. And Saturday service said, sweet. And uh, so we don't have any today. The second thing that we did wrong was we, didn't, we were not selling them. We were just like, yeah, just borrow it. Just borrow it, take it home, and then bring it back, which sounds really nice. But we didn't put our name in it. So I don't know if we're going to get them back. So here's the thing. If you're someone who's curious and you want to get your hands on the case for Christ this week, we have a plan for you on how you could do that. Amazon, um, go there and just order it and you'll get it like super, super quick. Because the thing is, is that we need to see the implications of this very historic, very real reality. Because this is not simply something we believe, it's something that changes us. If the event of the resurrection is true, it is the foundation for our faith. This is the first way it impacts us. It helps us understand that we are able and called to love those different than us. Why? Well, because as a Christian, I can tell you why I love people that are different from me that I can't relate to. If you're not a Christian, you, you probably do the same thing, but you just don't have the, the foundation to do so. Like, you, you'll, well, the reason I love people is, is because it's what you should do. Should? Why? Who says should? Well, you know, if you like, I, I, what, why, why do you love people and other people don't? Well, because I, I don't know, I'm just a good person. Okay, so the reason you love people is you're better than others. Well, I didn't say that. If you love people, if you love people, then they might love you back and they might, that might be a good thing for you. Okay, so you, the reason that you love people is that you can get something out of them. No, I didn't say that either. The problem is, is that we come into a logical problem with why we love unless we have something that's greater than us motivating it. The cross tells us that God, who could not relate to creation, he's the creator where creation became man. God became man. Could not relate to being a creation. All of a sudden, God is walking the earth that he created. And that is huge. And that motivates something inside of us. There's a, a documentary that came out in June. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm dying to see it. It's called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And who's it about? Mr. Rogers. How many of you grew up watching Mr. Rogers? How many? Okay. I, I remember watching it, and I was kind of watching it just to get through to Sesame Street because that was more entertaining to me. And the puppets creeped me out big time, like that old lady one. Like, oh, weird. Um, 
But the thing that was amazing about this guy is that Mr. Rogers was, was actually, he was an ordained Presbyterian minister. And, and he decided that his calling in life was to tr- communicate to kids that they are worthy of love and they're capable of loving others. He was taking the reality of the event of the resurrection that impacted his life and saying, God has looked at me even though we are not relatable and he related. He brought dignity to me. He, he looked at people, he looked at us even though we're radically diverse and he loves us. And he loves us just the way we are. And, and that, that's phenomenal. And so um, in, a, in a period of time where you're just coming out off the heels of Martin Luther King being assassinated and the civil rights movement blowing up and white folks are not even sure where they land on things and, and they're definitely not publicly promoting um, this type of civil rights unification. And all of a sudden, what does Fred Rogers, the prudish conservative dude wearing a cardigan do? He brings on to his show something that never had been done before. He brings on an African-American actor that was not done. I can't even believe that wasn't a thing. That, that people wouldn't do that with, with children's programming, but they wouldn't do that with children's programming. But he brings on Francois uh, Clemens, and he makes him Officer Clemens. Francois grew up in, in the ghetto, and he says that, that in the ghetto, he said, I, I had a, a very difficult idea towards white people, but specifically police officers. What does Fred Rogers cast Francois Clemens as? Officer Clemens. He, if, if Mr. Rogers' neighborhood of make-believe has one officer, it was going to be the African-American officer Clemens, that he was going to be someone that, that Fred Rogers would invite into the house and he would love. When the world saw, um, and I don't know if this is going to come up because it didn't come up last service, when the world saw this in the midst of, yeah, there it goes, uh, in midst of Jim Crow laws in June of 1964, the fact that there was laws against African-Americans and white folks swinging the same pool because, you know, you can't do that. All of a sudden, there was a protest um, staged at the um, Monson Motor Lodge and where black folks and white folks were going to swim together intentionally. And the manager, a guy by the name of James Brock, decided to come out and pour acid into the water. Because black people and white people can't be in the same pool. So what does Mr. Rogers do? Oh, well, Mr. Clemens, Officer Clemens, I just have this pool, happens to be in my yard. And it's such a hot day. I got to put my feet in here and fill it with water. Would you come over and join me? Oh, I don't know, Mr. Rogers, I I don't have a towel. That's okay, you can borrow mine. And all of a sudden the camera pans down to brown feet and white feet side by side without an issue. And I wish I could have grabbed the screenshot of it, but right after this, Mr. Rogers looks straight up into the camera and says nothing. He just smiles right past the children watching, right to the adults and says, why? Is this an issue? He was operating consistently, consistently out of the motivation factor, the fact that the event led him to say that though there is difference, we have inherent worth because God did this. He died on the cross and rose from the grave for us. That shows us how valuable we are to him. Everyone, no matter what, when other people look at you and they find hangups or handicaps, he sees a person. And Fred Rogers was, was admitting that. He was proclaiming that. The Washington Post, which is not a Christian publication, uh, quotes him and did a story on him and said this. This is Fred Rogers saying, love isn't a perfect state of caring. This is so profound. It is an active noun like struggle. To love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly the way he or she is right here and now. I think everybody longs to be loved and longs to know that he or she is lovable, he said in a 2003 documentary, America's Favorite Neighbor. 
And consequently, the greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved and, ex- and capable of loving. And this is the coolest thing, because this, this Presbyterian ordained minister is someone who was a conservative Christian. But his outlook was this. It's not like everybody's okay, but I'm just called to love everybody always. I'm just called to love everyone that's in front of me. That's what Jesus called me to do without, without hesitation, no matter what their, the differences are. The Post wrote, Rogers wasn't telling children that they were so perfect that there was no room for them to ever improve as people, just that he loved them as they were, regardless of who they were or what they had done. Why? Why would he say that? Well, the Post lets us know. Rogers echoed the sentiment of the biblical passage, 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and that he, he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The focus is not just on how important it is that you're loved, but also how vital it is to be loving. Roger's perspective was, is that if the event is true, it's not just something I believe, it's part of me. And it speaks into how I look at people who I cannot relate to, who are radically different from me. We're able and called to do so. But then we're able and called to take the harder step, which is to be able to recognize that we are able and called to love those difficult for me. We're not only called to love those different from me, but we're also called to love those difficult for me to love. People we would classify as the others, as the enemy, as the people on the outside. You, who, the people in your life that you don't, you don't really, you, can't, you, you don't enjoy because they do all these things, you've got reasons. You've got reasons to distance yourself from them. But that's not love. And what John is saying, that if, if the, the resurrection event is the foundation for our love, then it tells us a different definition of love. It tells us that we are, the starting of our story is that we are flat wrong. We are wrong. And God didn't say, see, that's why I don't hang out with those people. Look how wrong they are. I could never love them. I could never, I, they're wrong and they should be away. The gospel is, it starts off with the fact that we are flat wrong which is why God came near. That's the gospel. And it has implications. If that's the brand of love that we show, it impacts everything. This week I posted one way that it impacts relationships, marriage or boyfriend and girlfriend, whatever, um, for Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler says, love says, I've seen the ugly parts of you and I'm staying. I've seen the ugly parts of you and I'm staying. Our culture doesn't love love. It loves the idea of love. It wants the emotion without the sacrifice. Our culture says, I will love you as long as you're beautiful. I will love you as long as you love me, you respect me. I will love you as long as our conditions in life make me feel whole and complete and happy. And that makes sense. But Jesus' brand of love that centers around the event says, I love you and I will choose to struggle on to love you in spite of you because I love you. It is a choice. It is a struggle. And for those who are not like us, those who've disappointed us and wronged us, it's even harder. So here's what we're going to take for the road. First off this, this is your homework. Find someone you cannot relate to. That's the easy part. Because if you look in the row that you're sitting in, if you're looking at the people who live in your house, you can't relate to them. Like, oh, why don't they understand me? Find someone you can't relate to. That's the easy part. But then love them the way that you want Jesus to love you. 
Find someone you can't relate to and choose to love them the way you want Jesus to love you. So that means that as you're going out into your, 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 your car, you're going home, you're going to work, find someone that you've been avoiding because you know that they're different from you. They look different from you. They vote different from you. They're on the, the wrong side of the aisle than you. They're just different. You, you, don't, you don't get them. You don't get their culture. You've got amazing jokes about them that are hilarious, but they're wrong. And you find these people that you don't relate to and you choose to love them. Love them the way that you want Jesus to love you. Once you've done that, take the next harder step. To find someone that you think is flat wrong. And again, that's the easy part. Because you know people that you're like, you're not just flat wrong about one thing, they're flat wrong about multiple things. Find someone that you find is flat wrong and choose to love them the way that our Savior, who loved us when we were flat wrong, has. Find someone who you think is flat wrong and love them the way you want Jesus to love you. I'll tell you what, if you live this out, this will be the adventure of your life. You could live out these two action steps and everything would be different in your world. Your family, your family has been waiting for you to do this for a long time. Like begging for one and two to take place. The people at your work would flip out if you actually fleshed this out. Kids, if you're still in the house, junior high, high school, if you actually live this out with your parents, Because what will take place is this. People in your world who don't know Christ, who don't care about Christ, will have a picture of Christ in you. When you're living this out, they will have a picture of God with his feet on the ground. Amen? Let us live that out for his glory. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, we don't want to do this. We have no interest in doing this. This cuts against the grain of every self-protective instinct in our bodies to do this, to live out the radical love that you have called us to. But Lord, I thank you for giving us an example of what it looks like, that we could bank on the fact that you did that for us. Lord, I pray that you assist us in the task as we get into the parking lot and we go home to live out that kind of love with people who are different from us and people who are difficult for us to love. Give us the courage to follow your lead, knowing that even though it's difficult and messy and not always successful, it is the way to live, the best way to live for the best life you've called us into. And as the world that we live in shifts and changes because of that brand of love, we will give you the thanks as being the author of it. It's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. See you next week.